You're listening to 3CR Radio. And Kelvin Harris with School. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, April Holcomb from Community Action for Rainbow Rights joins us. We also chat with Ghassan Cassasia from Equality Australia about the gay panic defence. And later, Graham Watson from Out in Perth joins us. 3CR Well, last Saturday, queer activists were fined for breaching a Supreme Court order to protest against One Nation's education bill in New South Wales. And I spoke with one of the protesters, April Holcomb, from Community Action for Rainbow Rights. It's a bill that, if passed, would be the biggest blow to LGBTI rights for many decades. Um, The fact that this bill would fire any uh, teacher or counsellor working in a school who tries to help a trans student uh, through their transition, through their journey, this would be... Uh, a blow uh, to so many young people and to the adults working in our education system uh, at a time when actually what we need is more uh, education around gender diversity, more programs um, to encourage kids at school. So we really wanted to take a stand. We didn't just want to ignore the bill and let let it go unchallenged. We really wanted to take a stand to show young trans people that actually there's more people out there who support them um, than who oppose them. What is it that you find most personally abhorrent about this legislation? Well, as someone who went through the high school experience myself as a transgender person, I know exactly uh, what people are going through in those years. And the point of this bill is to target the most vulnerable people in our society and to punish anyone who attempts to help them. And even if the bill weren't to pass, the effect of raising the bill is to try to legitimise this type of rhetoric and this type of attack against um, young transgender people. Community Action for Rainbow Rights defied a court order to protest in Sydney last weekend. That says a lot about the group's passion and complete disdain for this legislation and the impacts on gender-diverse young people and intersex young people as well. Yes, definitely. Um, the stakes here were high enough that we uh, recognised the urgent need to take to the streets. And the brilliant part was that hundreds of other people also recognised this and joined us, and that's what made the day such a success, um, with or without uh, the government's uh, sanctioning of the protest. What does New South Wales law say about the right to protest during COVID? Well, it has an uh, appalling double standard, uh, which is extremely concerning. So on the same day 
that the Supreme Court decided that our protest could not go ahead because uh, we are unable to absolutely, with uh, 100% uh, guarantee, um, ensure that there is no risk of COVID transmission. At the same time that the judge decided that is the standard with which protests must uh, uphold, the New South Wales government uh, doubled the number of attendees who are allowed to attend a horse race next week to 11,000. So currently the public health orders in New South Wales ban uh, more than 20 people gathering outside for a common purpose. But the way that the New South Wales police interpret the phrase for a common purpose has only and exclusively been uh, against those who are assembling for a political purpose. So, for example, thousands of people are allowed to tend the beach for a common purpose of swimming in the ocean. But if those people were to each hold a political placard with a slogan, they would instantly um, be there for a common purpose and the police uh, could arrest and fine people about $1,000, which they've done to us. So this shows that there's no public health rationale for this, um, for this suppression of the right to protest, especially because protests have um, almost overwhelmingly been uh, with people wearing masks, physically distancing, hand sanitizer, and so on. This is actually just uh, the New South Wales government um, using an opportunity with the COVID crisis um, to uh, crack down on dissent um, at the same time as they open the economy uh, for everything else. What's the New South Wales government's position on One Nation's Education Amendment Parental Rights Bill? Well, no one's exactly sure because both uh, neither the New South Wales Liberal government nor the opposition party have, as far as we know, come out with official statements against the bill. Um, and this is extremely concerning um, given that uh, the bill is such an extreme and inflammatory uh, attempt um, to discriminate against transgender people. So this also uh, increases our need to get out there and fight because there's no opposition coming from the official uh, channels of, of politicians. Has New South Wales opposition leader Jody Mackay condemned the bill in any way? Not that I've heard of, and I think this is uh, generally in line with uh, the unfortunate reality of opposition Labor parties in both the state and federal level not really acting like an opposition against the Liberal Party or against the Conservative right. So I don't think we can rely on uh, the type of parties who are going ahead with the Liberals' tax cuts, with the Liberals' um, gas recovery plan, just destroying our environment. I don't think we can rely on these people to be um, uh, effective opposition to the type of um, conservative politics of people like Mark Latham and One Nation. What are the chances of One Nation's bill becoming law in New South Wales? Uh, at the moment, they don't appear very high, but if we recognise that the bill is unlikely to become law, then Mark Latham himself obviously also knows this, which means that for Mark Latham, there is an extra utility in pushing this bill beyond whether it becomes law or not. And that utility is... Um, to throw a gauntlet down to progressive people and say, I am going to say this outrageous, disgusting, bigoted thing. I'm going to try to make it become law in New South Wales. I'm going to try and normalise transphobia and the victimisation of young people. And what are you going to do about it? So there's sort of two aspects to what makes 
this bill so heinous, the effect it could have if it were passed, and the effect it has whether or not it passes. What are some of the public statements that Mark Latham has been making in support of his bill? Well, Mark Latham, uh, I saw an article that quite accurately described Mark Latham as the sort of the new Fred Nile, a extreme conservative who uses his position to bang on about issues of gender and sexuality in a reactionary way. Some of the comments he's made over the years have been about um, the school system becoming a gender brainwashing factories um, that basically kids are being taught um, or being brainwashed by uh, secret cultural Marxist and left-wing um, public school teachers and so on. Um, this is all outrageous. If anything, the public school system's sex and gender diverse education is wholly inadequate, that even the small amounts that are discussed in schools, which is a progressive change down to the, the struggle of people for those kinds of changes, even that is too much for Mark Latham. I guess what I'd say to Mark Latham is that he does not at all represent the majority of people. Thanks to the fact that people have come out and protest, have shown their pride in themselves, have defied um, public opinion and, and, and public prejudice and so on, there actually has been a significant transformation in people's attitudes in a positive direction. And uh, Mark Latham has basically lost that battle um, and he should go away. <laughs> Tell us about the political alliances that Community Action for Rainbow Rights has been forming lately in response to One Nation's education bill in New South Wales. Yeah, well, Community Action for Rainbow Rights is a very long-standing organisation in, in, in New South Wales. It's been around for 20 years, and it was really core to the, um, to the movement for marriage equality, uh, which we, which we um, had a tremendous victory with. And so CAR always uh, has formed alliances with other organisations. Uh, in the case of uh, this bill, we have uh, formed alliances with many different organisations in the LGBTI community, groups like uh, the Mardi Gras, um, Pride in Protest, Parents of Trans Children, um, uh, and so on. The other alliance we've formed is with a coalition called Democracy is Essential, Restore the Right to Protest. And this is sort of an umbrella organisation of all of the campaigns uh, like Black Lives Matter, Climate Justice, uh, LGBTI rights, workers' rights, all these campaigns that are currently um, being repressed under the outrageous public health orders which are only applied against protests. So uh, it's important to be part of a, of a campaign not just to fight Mark Latham but to defend the right to protest. And the alliance we've formed with Democracy is Essential has been really, um, really crucial to that. You mentioned Mardi Gras. You must see parallels between what happened in 1978 at the first Mardi Gras at that protest and the protest and the events that, that, that happened to Community Action for Rainbow Rights on the weekend with the police. I definitely see those parallels um, and was proud to point out those parallels when I spoke at the demonstration. I think if in 1978 the heroes of our movement had seen the police had, had you know, seen the fact that their protest was deemed illegal, if they had seen all that and decided just to go home and not to stand up and fight, I wonder where as a society we'd be now in terms of the rights of LGBTI people. And so the fact that we were able to stand up on Saturday 
to have 500 people come together to defy the police, to take over the road, um, to be pushed and brutalized by police, but to stand up again, to run, to take over the road again. Uh, it was really an exhilarating day um, for everyone involved. And I think it's only going to be the start of creating a new generation of radical political people who aren't just going to go along with whatever the government says is allowed, but are going to get out there and demand change and make it happen. What future actions can we expect from your organisation? We will be meeting in the next week to discuss our future plans. Definitely uh, some more protests are on the cards. There's still the religious freedom bill of the federal government, you know, in their top drawer, which they could pull out at any time. And uh, we need to be ready to fight that. But I guess the other thing is that most activists in CAR are not just single-issue activists, and there are other protest campaigns going on at the moment, like Black Lives Matter for climate justice, uh, and in particular, um, the fight against the government's, what the government has just done in, at, at a federal, federal level to double the cost of humanities degrees at university, to savagely cut funding to higher education. Um, but in terms of LGBTI protests, you can definitely expect some more uh, coming into the future. So Carr really sees the link between queer struggles and solidarity with other oppressed groups? Absolutely. I think there is an entire system we live under which is unequal, which is discriminatory, and when we work together, when we join the struggles against racism, against LGBTI oppression, against the exploitation of workers, against attacks on students and the poor, when we combine these we strengthen each of them in turn and make our voice that much louder and make our, make our movement that much more effective. April Holcomb, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. Thanks very much, James. 
And that was the do shake mountain shake. While Gazan Cassasia is the legal officer at Equality Australia, and Gazan begins our interview by describing the gay panic defence and the campaign to have it abolished in South Australia. So it is um, a defence to a murder conviction, reducing a conviction for murder to manslaughter, where the offender says they've effectively lost control over their behaviour because of something that um, someone has done to them. It's part of the provocation defence. And as um, in relation to gay panic, it applies where the offender says they've lost control effectively because um, the offender, a straight bloke, has lost control because a, uh, an, another man has made a pass at him. It begs belief that's still used in Australia. How widely used is it? Well, it's actually been prohibited across Australia in all states and territories except for South Australia. So South Australia is the last place that um, allows the defence to be raised in, um, sometimes it's called the homosexual advance defence, sometimes gay panic, um, but under the rubric of the provocation defence. And the last time it was raised was in a trial um, in 2015 that went all the way to the High Court. And how successful was it in, in 2015 as a defence? So the the offender was uh, uh, effectively the court said that the defence should have been left to the jury and ordered a retrial. The offender was in fact convicted subsequently, but it meant that um, that that trial effect the first trial was effectively um, had miscarried, and the offender had to go back to. Uh, have the case being heard before a jury again. Tell us about the campaign in South Australia to have it overturned. So it's important that um, not only... Uh, the, the problem with the defence is underlying the defence is the notion that it's, it is okay or that we should be lenient towards people who um, are, lose control effectively because someone has... Um, expressed or, um, you know, in a way that has made them uncomfortable on the basis of, of their sexuality. And we're concerned that the, the defence can actually be invoked in lots of other circumstances where we know that our communities, um, gay men, but others as well, so trans people um, are often victims to violent crimes. And the crimes that occur um, against our communities are often Horrific. So, the, you know, it, it doesn't always rise to murder. Um, it can be physical, it can be verbal, it can be harassment. So what we're calling for is not only the removal of the defence to murder, but actually some proactive laws that prevent, um, so that allow rather courts to consider whether uh, an offender has been motivated by prejudice when they um, make a, uh, a decision as to what the sentence should be. So absolutely remove the gay panic defence, but in its place, courts should be asked to consider whether the, the offender has actually um, attacked their victim because of prejudice or because of hate. So the gay panic defence sounds like a, a legal validation of a hate crime, a defence of a hate crime. Well, it certainly gives leniency um, where prejudice is part of the motivation that, that resulted in that loss of control. And we think that it should be the other way around, that um, you know, prejudice should increase your punishment, not reduce it. And our concern is just removing the defence on its own 
doesn't deal with the the broader issue, which is that our community, members of our community remain under attack in various ways. And it doesn't always go to the the severity of, of murder. Sometimes it's property damage. Sometimes it's harassment on the street. And in all those crimes which get committed, so whether it's someone spraying graffiti that's homophobic on, on the wall um, of your apartment or um you know, someone abusing you across the street, these these regular crimes, assaults, vandalism, there should be a lens through which the court looks to whether or not the person that's on the receiving end of that has actually had more than just property damage or an assault, but um, that the offenders actually attack their sense of safety and their sense of dignity and their ability to live in the community like everyone else with that, with that degree of respect and, and dignity. It sounds like the gay panic defence is a hangover from when homosexuality was illegal. And it's ironic that South Australia is the last state to abolish it, considering it was the first state to decriminalise homosexuality. It is a relic. And so the defence sits under what is called the provocation defence. And it's been used in a whole range of um, scenarios, which are supposed to move with the times. And the the problem is that the fact that the defence is still being used in, in the gay panic scenario or the homosexual advance scenario as, as late as 2015 begs the question of why in today's um, society, given attitudes have changed, that there is ever an excuse for homophobic or um, transphobic um, or any prejudice-based violence against members of our community. Have there been attempts in South Australia before to abolish the gay panic defence? And if so, why do you think they failed? Well, there's there's been a long-standing campaign and we're working with the South Australian um, Rainbow Advocacy um, Network in, um, in South Australia around this long-standing campaign to remove the defence. It's been raised before in Parliament uh, and, in fact, the government has committed to doing so. There's been a long law reform process. Um, so the South Australian Law Reform Institute looked at um, looked at this defence. It looked at how it interacts, interacts with other defences. So provocation has also been used, for example, in some domestic violence situations um, and about how to modernise the, the criminal law to ensure the correct defences are there for people who have, um, uh, for, for people to whom, you know, there's some sympathy for the, the response that they've had um, in, in respect of the circumstances they've seen themselves in. But um, it's been a long-standing and overdue reform that's necessary to remove at least this aspect that really just legitimises prejudice against members of our communities. So where is uh, overturning this, this defence at at a parliamentary level? I know that the government, as you said, in South Australia has committed to overturning it. Is there a bill that's been drafted? Where is it at? Yeah, so there is a there was a draft bill that was released for consultation this year um, and the Attorney General has consulted um, on that bill. So we're expecting a bill to be uh, debated in Parliament before the end of this year. Uh, and we hope that that bill will deal with not only the repeal of gay panic, but also protections to ensure that uh, courts can consider whether hate crime and, and prejudice against people was part of the motivating factor for a whole range of offences that might occur.
what has the South Australian opposition got to say about this? Have they committed to supporting the government's legislation? I think there is broad support for for the reforms. Um, the problem is we don't know yet what the final detail of the legislation looks like. So um, I, I think there is broad broad support for removing provocation, but we'll have to wait and see how um, the final bill looks like to, to be able to know where everyone stands. Of course, Equality Australia is running a campaign on this issue. What can people do to support the campaign? Well, amazingly, we've had just over 22,000 people sign a petition on change.org that we are co-hosting with South Australia's um, Rainbow Advocacy Alliance. Um, So if people want to hop on to um, change.org, the survey Protect LGBTIQ plus people from hate crimes is probably trending right now. And it will send an important message, first of all, thanking the South Australian government for finally bringing these reforms forward, but also asking for that extra uh, insurance policy, I suppose, in ensuring that prejudice-motivated conduct can be taken into account as a factor um, when uh, courts are sentencing offenders. Of course, Equality Australia is doing a lot to combat the federal government's religious discrimination legislation. Where's all that at politically? Well, at the moment, the federal bill has been stalled and partly due to um, the COVID crisis, but we're actually also seeing um, a copycat and much worse bill in in some respects at the New South Wales level. Uh, So uh, One Nation New South Wales leader Mark Latham has introduced a similar bill in New South Wales Parliament and actually the uh, inquiry into that bill um, will go into public hearings next week. So um, unfortunately there are still threats to... Uh, equality in different parts of Australia uh, and LGBTI people are often in the firing line on on some of these um, proposals, not in the extent that they provide protection to people um, from discrimination, but that that they actually go further and allow people to use religion as a guise to discriminate. You're listening to an interview with Gazan Kassasia on 3CRs in your face. So there's actually two bills that, um, there's in fact three, but two that are particularly concerning. There's the Ignorance and Education Bill that Mark Latham has proposed, but also a religious discrimination um, copycat bill that he's also proposed. And absolutely, in terms of the, in terms of the, um, the education bill, It's alarming in many respects. It's alarming because it prohibits teachers from supporting trans and gender diverse students. It um, legislates absolute fallacies of fact into the law about um, people born with intersex variations, describing them as disordered in in a definition of gender fluidity that barely makes sense. Um, But it actually impacts on all all, all of our communities. So anyone that supports uh, a appropriate education for children, no matter who they are, no matter what family they come from or what background they have, where there's an opportunity for them to hear different sides of uh, issues on, on political or moral questions, where there is an environment where they feel safe in which to engage in those issues, it means that a parent can actually pull out a child from any class uh, 
where they disagree with a, po- a political or moral issue. So we're talking about everything from issues like LGBTI issues and, and discussions about LGBTI people or say marriage equality, right through to views about immunization, views about climate change, views about um, history and um, Indigenous people's place in it and those sorts of issues. So it is a pretty scary world where one nation is dictating to uh, the parents of um, New South Wales students what should not shouldn't be taught in their classrooms, but also handing only some parents the ability to uh, you know, pull their children out from classes that give them an opportunity to see the full world and the full diversity of the world in which they will live. So Mark Latham's really kind of running with the mantle that Fred Nile has historically used in, in New South Wales politically. Uh, what's your reading of the government's lack of uh, speaking out against his, his education bill? Well, we hope that the government and the opposition will strongly denounce this bill in all in all of it. So we will not um, support any aspect of it because it is incredibly harmful to um, to both trans and gender diverse children, but more importantly, it is actually harmful to a fundamental value around our education system that children should have a right to go to school in an environment in which they are safe to learn and to thrive. Um, So we hope that um, both the government and the opposition will draw a very strong and firm line under the bill and will not accept any aspect of it. You mentioned Mark Latham's religious discrimination bill. Has New South Wales Premier condemned it? Has she denounced it? Well, at the moment, it's before an inquiry but with 14 members of the uh, New South Wales Parliament. It's a cross-parliament um, inquiry in that it's both houses and uh, many parties and uh, faith traditions and no faith traditions are represented among its members. So, unfortunately, we don't have a, um, a clear view and uh, in terms of where it will land, but we certainly hope that the committee will look at the the bill that's before them um, and recognise the broad range of stakeholders that have made submissions concerned about everything from um, the impact on LGBTI people to the impact on women and reproductive um, health and access to it, uh, to the impact on people who rely on services provided by faith-based organisations Um, who will be granted very broad exemptions, allowing them to discriminate on the basis of uh, someone's religion or lack thereof uh, in even publicly funded services, which we think goes way too far um, in terms of ensuring that all of us are protected equally under the law. 3CR Mark Latham put through a a motion effectively putting himself as um, a chair in, uh, well, he is the chair of an education um, committee um, as, uh, you know, judge, jury and executioner on his own bill. Um, So we're very concerned about where that bill is at. And that's why it's very important to see the government and the opposition clearly draw a line under that bill, which takes us back is one of the most transphobic pieces of legislation I think we've ever seen. How on earth did we get a situation politically where Mark Latham is chairing an inquiry about his own regressive bill? Well, that's a good question. And I think that's 
well directed to uh, the, the members of the upper house of um, the New South Wales Parliament. But in any event, the important thing now is that they draw a clear line under the bill and that that process does not entertain amendments that would undermine a child's right to an education in a safe and inclusive environment, which gives them the best opportunity to learn and uh, thrive. How politically influential is Mark Latham in New South Wales' upper house? Does the government need his vote politically to pass legislation? So in certain cases where uh, the government isn't able to secure the votes of, say, the Labor Party, the Greens, um, there's also shooters and fishers in our upper house in New South Wales, um, then the One Nation vote can be critical to getting government legislation through. Um, but certainly on this bill, this education bill, there is certainly enough votes if uh, the opposition and the government would have voted down. So he doesn't hold any power in respect of this education bill if both parties are clear that they will not accept discrimination against children in our schools and indeed against teachers who are trans and gender diverse that are being threatened um, with uh, losing their accreditation, um, not just teachers but even school counsellors being threatened with um, losing their jobs if they simply affirm a, a child who is trans and gender diverse by using, for example, correct pronouns or names. Of course, you are the legal officer at Equality Australia. What other legal issues are you currently working on? Well, there's a a range of issues across the country. So we still have um, birth certificate laws in Queensland, New South Wales and Western Australia that require, um, in Western Australia, uh, medical treatment or surgery and in New South Wales and and Queensland surgery to uh, before someone can Uh, amend their birth certificate to reflect their gender. We also have uh, laws across the country that um, have exemptions that allow, for example, students to be expelled from a a faith-based or private school um, because simply they are gay or um, they are are trans. Um, And teachers can be uh, fired as well in in certain cases, similarly from schools, but also other faith-based organisations that have broad exemptions under discrimination laws that are intended to protect people in workplaces, in education settings, and in the provision of goods and services. You're strongly committed to social justice and the human rights of the LGBTIQ community. And you've really dedicated your your legal career in recent years to the community. What can you tell us about your personal journey that that got you to this point? I mean, you could have made a lot more money in the private sector, I imagine. Well, um, look, I am very fortunate and privileged to have had the opportunity to have gone to an excellent public public school in, in New South Wales, to have been able to go to a university um, and... Uh, any lawyer is um, any lawyer uh, should and um, is encouraged to use the skills that they have, even regardless of whether they are in commercial practice. And I was in commercial practice for many years to try and do what they can to make sure that the law works for everyone and it works for everyone equally. So it's actually more a, a result of the privilege that I've had in in having that education. And I hope that everyone is given an opportunity for the same 
the same opportunities that I've had in terms of the importance of education to opening up those opportunities for people. What can you tell us about your, your, your background that, that drives your sense of social justice and equality? Uh, well, uh, I mean, for me personally, I came to Australia when I was five from Jordan and um, culturally, uh, you know, being from an Arabic background, that, that's been a really important part of um, my identity and uh, it's been a really important part to see that my cultural identity, my citizenship as an Australian and as a gay man, that they're all equal, that they're all recognised as an important part of the diversity that makes up um, our nation. And uh, and I think that, that, that in some ways uh, my life has been a conversation between those aspects of my identity and I hope that... Um, in doing some of the work that we do do at Equality Australia, that other people feel that they can have those conversations that are sometimes difficult. Um, But for things that I think overall we all share around the importance of family, around the importance of people feeling that they are valued and that they belong, um, and that people feel that they have the opportunities to make the best out of the life that they've been given. Gassan Kassasir, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. Thank you so much for having me.
up is Abigail covering REM's Losing My Religion, or Graham Watson is the managing editor of queer online publication Out in Perth, and Graham begins our interview by describing how Margaret Court is back in the news. Well, you know, Margaret Court is, of course, lives here in Perth, so uh, we kind of get all the first-hand news about her, and as much as we'd rather not write about her, she's been up to a lot uh, this week. The first thing which I guess happened was her church, the Victory Life Church, their charity arm applied for a grant from Lottery West, which is our funding body that collects money through Lotto and Scratchies and all those things. And they were turned down because Lottery West follows a policy of supporting organisations that are inclusive and support equality. And they said based on, you know, the stance of her organisation, they didn't feel they could fund them. They didn't meet the criteria and the board turned them down. And uh, Margaret Court is not happy about this and has suggested that she might file a equal opportunity complaint saying she's been discriminated against because of her religious beliefs. Wow, okay. So that's a bit of a turnaround, isn't it? Normally it's the other way around. Well, it is. And um, I guess where it kind of got a little bit more confusing um, that uh, she actually gave a sermon at her church on Sunday. And these nowadays, are, they broadcast these live. They're on the internet. Everyone can watch them. And she said she wanted to address everyone about the criticisms of comments she said in the past, particularly comments she said which suggested that uh, transgender children and the devil were linked in some way. And she said she never said those statements, that they'd been uh, something that the press had written. And she said, uh, described it as when she was doing a radio interview that somebody else came in and said those statements, that it was not her who had said them. And this was quite strange and unexpected because that interview which was on the radio, she said it was five years ago, it was actually only three, um, they're, of course, still recorded. They're still on the internet. You can still go listen to those radio interviews. And it's very clearly Margaret who says those comments. And she's said them on other occasions as well. So it's almost in that kind of, uh, I don't know, alternative facts, alternative reality kind of world where you just deny you said something, even though there are very clear recordings of you saying it. There's also a story in Out in Perth about an automated phone poll from an anti-trans group. Tell us about that. Binary is uh, the group that has grown out of the No campaign for marriage equality. Um, moving on from being against uh, same-sex couples getting married, they're now against uh, all things non-binary, transgender. And uh, Perth is the latest city to be hit by a binary phone poll. There's been a few of them sort of come across the country in different places at different times. Um, a lot of people from the queer community got hit by the phone poll. Uh, and a lot of transgender people got uh, the phone poll, it turns out. Um, this poll that uh, they've done in other cities, they have been described as push polls, polls that kind of lead you to a particular question, and then they publish the results and uh, present them to a lot of parliamentarians' offices. This is what the people think about transgender people. This one was a lot about transgender people in sport and also very clearly linked to the recent case of Tasmanian Senator Claire Chandler, who had a discrimination complaint raised against her. And uh, it asked questions about, you know, should people be allowed to say whatever they want, should... Um, people be allowed to take into um, anti-discrimination boards for stating their beliefs? And uh, should, you know, biologically born men be allowed to play in women's sport? But everyone, I've spoken to a few people who got the poll, and uh, they all described it as being well, kind of not in context, not really giving you a lot of information about the actual topic, just sort of asking questions that led you kind of in the direction of a particular answer. It's interesting, isn't it? You wonder what the information from the poll is going to be used for. Well, we know what happens with these polls because they've been done in Canberra before. They've done one in uh, New South Wales before. They've done one in Tasmania. And they do put out reports um, and they do send them to parliamentarians, to politicians, to try and influence the way particular policies will go. Um, hopefully, we just, you know, hope the people in political offices are kind of savvy enough to see them for what they are.
Is there a particular piece of legislation, do you think, that Binary has in mind? I think uh, there's probably a couple coming up. Um, here in Western Australia, it was a surprise we got it here because obviously there's uh, some legislation going on in New South Wales, Mark Latham's bill, which uh, aims to sort of stop people mentioning anything about gender um, and sexuality in schools. Um, so why was the poll in WA? It's a good question. We are not far away from a state election. It's going to be early next year. We have set dates when our elections occur every four years. So I would guess it's probably in the lead up to that. In Western Australia, we are at a dead standstill with anything in LGBTI rights. And what happened uh, last year is we had a bill that the Labor government, the McCown government, put forward to change laws around surrogacy. And it stalled in the upper house um, because we have one politician. His name is Nick Graham. He's a member of the Legislative Council. And he did an amazing filibuster where he had the floor and he just spoke. He spoke for over 21 hours um, over several days. And what was clear that uh, nothing was going to happen with his bill because he was just going to talk forever. And it got put to a committee and anything to do with LGBTI rights has been very, very clearly off the table in the WA Parliament. Um, this week they've announced Inclusive Education, which is the rebranded Safe Schools Program, uh, is not getting funding beyond the end of this month. It's uh, going to end. A lot of people not very happy about that. Um, you know, the West Australian election, it's... The polls at the moment for Mark McGowan, um, you know, we were calling him Mr. 89% because that's what the last poll said his support was. It's gone up since then in other polls. So um, he's got 90% approval rating at the moment, which is not looking really good for the Liberal opposition led by Lisa Harvey. There's a lot of speculation. She might even be dumped at the leader before we get to the election, and we're only a few months out. Um, we would hope after the election that we could get on with it a bit, but at the moment uh, it does seem to just be a bit of nothing happening, something we don't want to talk about. What do you think explains that bounce in the polls for the Premier? Is it because of WA's good fortune in relation to the coronavirus? Look, I think it definitely is. It is the, Mark McGowan's very solid stance that we're having that hard border and we're keeping it. Um, you know, we are lucky that we have spent the least amount of time in a lockdown situation. You know, we had a couple of months where we all work from home, but we are back. You know, we're going to rock concerts. We are seeing the theatre. It's different conditions, but life is... You know, not back to normal, but certainly more back to normal than anywhere else in the country. And Mark McGowan is getting the credit for that. Um, and, you know, the indications are we're not going to be letting anyone else into WA uh, any time in the near future. The budget came out this week and they said it could be March, June next year before we open that border. So people are feeling um, very patriotic at the moment, mainly because we've all had holidays in Western Australia. Um, and probably seen more of the state than we have uh, recently. So we're all feeling pretty proud West Australians. Interestingly, the um, movement to succeed from the rest of the country and become our own country has also dramatically grown in popularity over the last few months. Of course, you are the managing editor of Out in Perth. Tell us about your journey that got you to the position. Well, you know, if there's a, a practical and normal way that you have a career in media, it's not the way that I came. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, I actually um, started doing some lecturing in journalism last year and they, they asked me for my just a copy of my formal qualifications and I had to say, well, I don't have any. I learned on the job. I um, actually came into the media industry uh, working in the film industry uh, and I actually started off doing compliance management in a film school and uh, learned a lot about the film industry while working there, started making corporate films and then I went to manage a radio station for a couple of years, a very popular one here in Perth, uh, RTRFM, and then someone said, would you like to be the editor of our local LGBTI newspaper magazine? And I said, yes. And that's 
my first time working in print media. So I very much learned on the job. Of course, it's always challenging keeping uh, LGBTIQ publications afloat. Is the secret to you guys managing to, to thrive and, and stay functional because you changed that business model aspect of, of print, that you're just online and that you've been doing that for some time and uh, that's actually sustained you? Well, yeah, we love print publishing. Uh, we certainly um, were the most largest print uh, LGBTI publication in Australia for the population, the number of copies we were doing. We were doing 10,000 copies about per uh, monthly uh, around the city, which um, if you look at the other publications in Australia, some of them that's you know almost the same as they put across three or four cities on the East Coast. So we were very popular and we couldn't meet the demand. Everyone wanted it in print. But the realities are that a print magazine, Free Street Press, in you know this time is no longer viable. It's not something which um, I think is an effective business model. You have to change with the times. So uh, it was very sad for us when we decided we wouldn't be in print anymore. I really miss doing front covers. I really miss uh, the layout side of it. I don't miss delivering 10,000 magazines to 300 places around Perth. But it certainly just shows you constantly have to be changing. You have to be adapting to new things. You have to be, you know, moving into podcasts and Instagram and online radio and um, faster turnaround of stories. And I think what has been our success is that we are very fast at responding and we work um, we work nomadically. We no longer have an office. We just have mobile phones and laptops and we go where we go. And we've done covered some elections now just with, you know, iPhones and a good internet connection. And it's just the way of the future to work in community media. We do have some people locally who are a bit upset when we stop being a print publication. But when you explain to them, like, it's about $120,000 a year just to put it out on the street, to have an office, because you need to store the magazine somewhere, you need to work from somewhere. The printing costs, which are very high here in Western Australia, the delivery costs, and it's just, you know, it's a really, really expensive operation. So the interesting thing is time has moved on. I'm coming up to my 10th anniversary of uh, being part of the team here at Out in Perth, and when I started uh, 10 years ago, 2011, uh, there would have been about 4,000 people a month going to the website, and we would put out a 40-page magazine once a month. Now we would have maybe 4,000 people some days going to the website and the amount of content that is created is far more than could ever have been put in a 40-page magazine. There is heaps more content, there is heaps more news reporting now than there ever was and it's been done much more cheaply and faster. Graham, tell us a little bit about the LGBTIQ community in Perth uh, and how it might be different from, say, the communities in Melbourne and Sydney. I think here in Perth, I mean, you know, there's lots of communities rather than one single community, but we probably um, kind of intersect maybe a little bit more than some other cities. I think you see a little bit more of an intergenerational thing because we are a little bit smaller. Um, We have two venues here in Perth. Sometimes we have three, but we never really seem in the long term to crack more than having two places that we go to. So we are all generally, if we're going out, hanging out in the same spots, the Court Hotel and Connections Nightclub. And, you know, they're both long-standing venues. Connections is going to celebrate its 45th birthday next month. Um, so we've kind of got a really kind of long-running, stable community in a way that we've been going to the same places for generations. Graham, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and congratulations with Out in Perth. Ten years, that's quite an achievement. Ten years I've been here and I think uh, 2002, so it's going to be 18 years for Out in Perth next year. 
current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face, taking us as Mazzy Star, Seasons of Your Day.
know